Pachango. show respect for your animal to stop their suffering and no one can argue that that's the right thing to do for your animal when it needs respect and dignity everyone knows that's the right thing to do my grandpa is 96 years old if he starts walking around the backyard with a kleenex box in his head a cape and a snowsuit and one roller skate and decides that he's superman and lex luther next door is going to steal his wheelbarrow i can't show him the same fundamental fucking respect i showed my dog all right that guy really is a war hero. He elbowed fuck Nazis to death in North Italy for four years and never brings it up unless he wants free Paya Denny's. And I can't give him the respect he deserves. Where he lives, you are not allowed euthanasia. But state-sponsored execution, perfectly legal in 30 states. So now when my grandpa goes crazy, I gotta frame him for a double rape and murder in Texas. Do you know how hard it is they an old man to hold a gun while you milk him for evidence? That's not easy at all. Easy as that parade. Yeah, it is, Grandpa. Thanks for your service. Don't get any on the medals. We're going to sell them. That, my friends, is Simon King, the guest on today's episode of Tangentially Speaking. That little bit of comedy right there uh, sort of sums up why I wanted to get this guy on the podcast. I mean, obviously, it's funny. He's a comedian. He's funny. That's, you know, price of entry. But he goes so much further than that. He's talking here about respect. What is respect? There's anger. There's outrage. There's a sense of injustice. And he goes to places most... Who's going to talk about jerking off your grandfather for evidence while you're trying to frame him for a double rape and murder in Texas because he deserves... A dignified death. I mean, how do you, how, what kind of mind comes up with that shit? The mind of Simon King. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Simon King. He's awesome. Those of you who subscribe to the podcast, support the podcast financially, will have access to the video of this conversation with Simon King. Uh, and uh, yeah, so just reminder, please use my Amazon link. I keep forgetting. I, I don't, it's not that I forget. It's that I hate being boring. I fucking hate being boring, especially boring my friends. And you are my friends. You're it. I hope you'll all come to my funeral. Uh, and, uh, you know, Especially if I've been framed for a double rape and murder in Texas. I, I hope you'll you'll forgive me for that. <laughs> I was framed. I didn't do it. I swear. Um, anyway, you're my friend. So I, I hate boring you. I hate repeating the same bullshit all the time. But the problem is when I don't, uh, then things don't happen. So anyway, I will insert the Amazon link. If you use Amazon... If it's a guilty pleasure to get stuff delivered to your door, you can mitigate the guilt, the shame, the sin in the eyes of God uh, a little bit by using my Amazon affiliate link, which will support the podcast. A small percentage of whatever you spend will come out of Jeff Bezos's 
deep, deep pockets and into my microscopically shallow pockets. And that will be a, a great support for the podcast. So you can find that on the show notes for this particular episode at chrisryan.substack.com or uh, on my website, thatchrisryan.com. And uh, the best way to do it is just click on it once and then bookmark it and then go through that bookmark and you don't need to remember. And I don't need to bore the fuck out of you by saying this over and over again. In fact, let's just go right into the conversation. I'm going to be posting uh, Roma, uh, one of those mentorship series Romas. Uh, this is recorded with a guy, I, I forget if he was in Ireland or England. I think I think he's an Irish dude, but he was living in England, if I'm not mistaken. I'm going to post that in the next few days. Uh, that will be a bonus episode for supporters of the podcast only. Um, again, this is going against my instincts. My instincts are like, fuck it, make everything available to everybody. And then we're all just a big, happy family. But the problem with that is then, uh, nobody supports the podcast, throws in that five bucks a month or whatever it is, 50 bucks a year. And then, uh, you know, I, don't know if I, I need to feed the kids, you know how it is. Uh, and also Substack gets a cut. And so I, I kind of screw them by not taking this seriously as a financial endeavor. So, um, yeah, I will be talking on that Roma about all kinds of things. Um, oh, wait, no. Yeah, I'll be doing a Roma where I'll be talking about all kinds of things. And then I will be also releasing this mentorship series thing uh, for members only. Uh, yeah, cool. All right. Thanks for listening. I'm going to keep this brief because this is a pretty extensive conversation with Simon and, uh, let's just go straight into it. No commercials other than what I just said about the Amazon thing. If you want a t-shirt or a beer koozie or any of that stuff, don't forget mom is standing by ready to send that stuff out. Look, I pay her every month, whether she sends stuff out or not. She's on a retainer. She's on a mom-tainer. Uh, so, you know, you're you're helping her earn her retainer money if you order some of this stuff and get her out to the post office. Where, by the way, the ladies all know my mom. Uh, I, when I was in L.A. last time and, and mom was a little under the weather, there were a couple packages to go out. And I went to the post office and all the ladies were like, where's your mother? How are you? How's Colorado? Like she must just go and hang out and chat with the ladies at the PO. It's awesome. That's the way mom is. She knows everybody. When my dad died, we had the memorial service and there was a couple there and I, I didn't recognize them. And I said to my mom, who are those people over there? And she said, oh, they're the people who have the strawberry stand at the farmer's market. That's Mark and, and Melanie, and they're friends of ours. And I was like, okay, people who sell strawberries at the farmer's market are at my dad's memorial service because you've just become buddies. That's the way she is and the way my dad was. It, they had, I remember... They had an anniversary party. My sister set it up. I was off traveling somewhere, but I got back for the party. Um, 
And my sister had the idea, I forget what anniversary it was, maybe 25, 30 years, something like that, a pretty big one. And my sister got a hold of my mother's address book, old school, actual address book, paper and pen and all that. And um, she just invited everyone in the address book. And she didn't know who they were, right? She just saw the names. And I mean, she knew who some of them were, obviously. Um, but some of them were just names and numbers. <laughs> so my sister just sent out invitations to everyone. Uh, I guess if there was an address in there or uh, or called if there was a phone number. Anyway, so people showed up at this party. Like there was a guy, this, this party, by the way, was in Enola, Pennsylvania, which is near Harrisburg in the center of the state. And there was a guy who drove all the way from Pittsburgh and I think we figured out he was the guy who used to clean their swimming pool like 20 years earlier when we lived in, in Pittsburgh. Because we moved from Pittsburgh when I was 15, and I was definitely in my late 20s. So this is, you know, 15 years, maybe 20 years. And this dude remembered my parents and got in a car and drove eight hours to be at their anniversary party. Yeah, I won the the parent lottery there. Sometimes, in a strange way, I think it makes me less understanding, um, and maybe, I, I hate to think this, but maybe less compassionate toward people who are dealing with a deficit of parental love and, and support. Um, and maybe I, one of my many, um, flaws is that like, it's hard for me to relate to someone whose parents weren't awesome. Um, yeah, it's a strange thing, right? That that you can actually be, I mean, in other ways, I think it kind of gave me a bit of a savior complex where I, I had friends, especially um, girlfriends that did not have that kind of support and love. And I felt like it was my responsibility to give it to them. And like, I had so much extra, you know, like I should share mine. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about how, that relates to you know how we, uh, the the sort of the way we're treated as children translates into the rest of our lives uh, i guess this is particularly on my mind right now because anya's mother was just here for the last five days and today is wednesday there are no mothers and tomorrow my mother and aunt and sister arrive for a few days so it's mother season here in crestone and uh yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about how that, how those early years and the the sort of environment that that our parents create around them. You know, the 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 penumbra, penum, what's the word? Penumbra, penumbra, the 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 field of love or anxiety or suspicion or fear or generosity or kindness or whatever the 
energy field is that we grow up in when we're little. We just think that's normal. We don't know that our parents are particular kinds of people. We just think that's how adults are. And how does that shape our minds? You know? I mean, I feel like those early years are like a potter shaping a, a... a piece of ceramic, a, a, a pot, a, 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 yeah, a vase. And then later, we decide what to put in it, right? We decide whether we're going to put wine or water or nuts or juice or whatever where the content is, we decide that. But the shape, we don't choose that. That happens to us. Interesting. Anyway, this is Simon King. Thank you for listening. Uh, Sending out lots of love to all of you. And uh, I'll be hanging out with my mom and my sister, both, and Dorothy Ann. Actually, all three of them have been on the podcast. Yeah, Aunt Dot, my sister Beth, and my mom will all be in town for the next few days. So that's going to be cool. I hope things are going well for you wherever you are. And uh, yeah, if your mom's in town, give her my love. And your dad too. Everybody. Talk to you soon. Some fucking algorithm somewhere spewed you forth onto (laughs) my Instagram feed. And dude, I'm a huge fan. Oh, thank you. I just want to get that. I mean, I know it's kind of awkward and all that, but... I grew up listening to George Carlin. Um, my dad brought home Class Clown when I was oh, great. 11 or something. And it was one of those moments where we sat down and listened to that. And and I felt like my dad was taking me seriously as an adult intelligence because he was sharing this brilliant fucking mind with me mm-hmm. and trusting that I would get it. And not go to school the next day and say, you know, <laughs> shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cock, 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 motherfucker, and tits. And tits. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, I did. Of course you did. That was exactly what George wanted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then years later, I met his daughter. I had uh, I had her on the podcast uh, after George had died, of course. But, you know, when my dad, I came home and told my dad that I had just been hanging out with uh with kelly i think her name is yeah, um kelly, yeah. he was like oh you know life is complete you you know someone who not only knows george but you know his daughter anyway so uh when i when i came across your work i mean you probably hear this all the time but it was so resonant of what carlin was doing with the social commentary and the fearlessness and the you just fucking charge right into oncoming fire and it's fucking awesome. And you have my admiration. So thank you for oh, that. Thank you. First of all, your dad sounds like an amazing dude. Cause that is such a, a thing to, to show your kid. Um, Carlin at, at that age, you're right. That's that denotes a huge respect for your, your child's intellect and understanding. And, uh, and he was obviously correct. And, and to me, um, comedy is such a great way to start people thinking about the world no matter what age um, that they are in but obviously George was at the leading edge I, I just watched the documentary actually finally watched it mm-hmm. American Dream I don't know if you've seen it but it's a fantastic obviously I knew about George and I read Last Words and all this other stuff and 
you know, consumed a lot of his work. Not until I was later in my career, actually. I didn't start really watching George until I was in, in sort of the uh, about 10 or 12 years in because I was very mindful of being influenced. But and also I, I underwent a change, which we can discuss later. But um, but the thing about watching that documentary was it showed you not only, um, you know, because we see the side of him that was like fearless and pushed and was, you know, fight the power and and this whole idea of like pushing back against the system. But there was a vulnerability there that was him. He really was risking a lot every time he did it, even because we think of him as filling these theaters and stadiums and you know, the seven dirty words when he gets arrested, that was like 60,000 people. And we think of that peak of his career, but there was huge risk involved that comedians today, you know, very fortunately in some way, and unfortunately in others don't have to experience. And George pushed in a direction and in a way that, yeah. And, and Richard and other people of his generation, Dick Gregory is a great example of this mm -hmm. as well. But that level of kind of balls out, I don't give a fuck what you think I'm going to do it was so inspiring to me when I really started to understand what he was Yeah, more so. I mean, he was funny. He was hilarious. Obviously he was hilarious, but his insight and his philosophy, it was this perfect blend of the big world and the small world and all the things in between. And uh, to get your eyes on that as a, as a young person to see that, to open, that is just, you're 10 years ahead of most people, 15 years ahead of most people. And when my son is old enough, I'll never let him see my work. <laughs> but I, he's asked me a few times. He's only seven. He's like, can I see your act? I'm like, oh, no, I can't afford the council. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely, when he's old enough, um, probably around that age, I'm going to be like, this is what the art form that your dad tries to do can do. Um, so do that's you, a fantastic story. Do you think that... I? You know, we're going to talk about comedy and obviously, you know, comedy is a very broad um, subject that, that ranges from somebody tripping on a banana peel to, you know, the most subtle sort of Stephen Wright kind of like or, mm. or um, uh, Andy Kaufman, you know, like where people are laughing because you're making them question what is reality or you're making them inten intentionally making them uncomfortable to elicit a laugh. So it, it's a very broad subject, but the kind of comedy we're talking about now, what you do, as far as I could tell from, from looking at your, your um, Instagram feed uh, and what Carlin did, do you think that there's a broken heartedness that's necessary to that kind of comedy? That's a really interesting question. And um, motivation is so at the core of all comedians, whatever it is. I mean, most comedians, that there's this joke that comedians are inherently unhappy. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but there's definitely pieces missing. Whatever those pieces are, whatever the reason comedians do it. Um, I think with someone like George and humbly so myself, there's a frustration that is quite deep because I've often said this because some people say like, why are you so angry? I'm like, I'm not angry. I'm frustrated because I, if I didn't believe we could do better, I would give up. Right. But I do really believe that we can do better. And we are an astonishing species. We can do some amazing things, but we cannot get out of our own way to do them because we're not very old. We're a very, very, very young species. And yet we can split atoms and go to Mars and do all these amazing things. So we judge ourselves by those accomplishments but we're still so animalistic and we do the things that 
essentially primates do because we are. And so it's very hard to justify those two worlds. And I think the frustration comes with looking at what we could be and being like, why are we still hanging on to what we are? Why are, are those aspects of us still dominant? Well, but because that's what we, that's also what we are. And it's finding that blend of the two. Part of that part of us, the, the need to explore, the need to find whatever it was at the time, food, resources, the, the aggression, whatever it was, blends really well into why we can do what we do. But I think the frustration for those of us who have the, the luxury of standing slightly outside of things, because I always say it's like, I'm not, seeing things other people aren't seeing i'm just i have the time to pay attention to them because i am lucky enough that i don't punch a clock and i don't have the and i have the ability to just because most people that come to my shows you know i understand that like they're thinking about snow tires and getting their kids to school and and the sitter and what time i've got to be home I, I, i can't expect them to have the luxury that i have of time so i have to figure out a way to take these big difficult concepts and put them into these which they already know, most of them already know, and put them into ways that are like easily digestible, just enough sugar to make the medicine go down. And humor is such a great way of doing that. And I think comedians that explore that, the more you push towards the motivation system while you're doing it, the frustration, that can leave you empty. And I will confess that I get very, because um, I am depressed and I, I have that stuff. And I, and I think part of it is because I think if you're paying attention enough, it hurts. The world hurts. It's a very painful place. And humor is the defense mechanism we use to deal with those things. And I think a lot of people do. And I think dark humor particularly. Um, and I think that that dealing with that and transforming that pain means you have to take it on and you have to kind of work with it. So it's like it's like you can't make a pot without getting clay on your hands. You just can't. So th- that's going to happen. And I think the, the deeper you dig into those things, if you are a sensitive, empathetic person, I think I think that comes across. So there is a bit of that. George, towards the end of his life, was very much like, I'm done. I can't do it anymore because he was exhausted. And I don't blame him. I don't blame him. Yeah, he um, he also had a cocaine problem, as you know. And, <laughs> I say, yeah. Um, and I've always felt that cocaine appeals to a particular personality type. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wonder, because, you know, you mentioned these sort of um, rebel comedians in the 70s, you know, the Dick Gregory's and uh, Richard Pryor. And, you know, we know Richard Pryor was freebasing and lit himself on fire with it. And yeah. Carlin had a heart attack or several heart attacks. Um, I wonder if if there's an... I was listening to an interview with um, David Sedaris recently. You know, I love the, David Sedaris. He's great, right? Oh, it's amazing. And he said, you know, he, he's a very serious guy in interviews. I mean, he's funny. He's witty, but he's, yeah. he's he goes real deep. And he said, you know, uh, everyone I know who's famous, particularly people who are famous in the comedy world, are um, desperate for approval. Oh, yeah, and 100%. That's what fuels us, right? Otherwise, we'd be yeah. home relaxing, you know, yeah, telling stories to our friends. We wouldn't be up on stage. And yeah. he said, he said, everyone in comedy is on is on a stage saying, "Love me, please love me, please love yeah. me," and is kind of pathetic, right? Yeah, a and little bit. Yeah, not, I'm quoting <laughs> him. I'm wrong. quoting him. He's not, that's not, he's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, but. Okay, and that brings me back to you know blowing smoke up your ass because there's a there's something about that particular style that 
that you and Carlin and and to some extent Richard Pryor, but not not as much um, employ, which which runs counter to that. It's kind of it, it's I'm standing on stage where everyone else is saying, please love love me. And I'm saying, I don't give a fuck if you love me. I'm mm-hmm. here to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach you fucking people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also, you know, I think that one of the reasons I, I really relate to this is I've written two books. And people often in interviews, they're like, so w- what motivates you to write a book? Because you're a lazy mm-hmm. fucker. I'm like a famously la- lazy. I was on Rogan <laughs> one time and Rogan says to me, so you're the most relaxed, smart person I know. <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, okay, you mean I'm lazy well. is what you mean. I know what Whoa, that is. You're so chill. Check that out. Look at how chill you are. <laughs> Very chill. Yeah. 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 Your Rogan That's impression's amazing. awesome. <laughs> That's an amazing compliment, though, like, because that means that you're like, you're totally not up your own ass. You're just like, look, it's like you're like this Matthew McConaughey figure of intelligence, which is amazing. <laughs> That's a great compliment. Man. Great. I'm the Matthew McConaughey of the intelligentsia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. Yeah. You just chill out. You're like, oh, yeah, I can do all that. Right, all right. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry. I just thought that was really cool. No, it was it was an interesting conversation, and and I think not coincidentally, it was the last time I've been on Rogan. I probably never go back because we spent a lot of time. I was basically saying to him, like, dude, I got better things to do than go to the gym. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think that's yeah. Basically, it's kind of a homoerotic thing. I'm not I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, um, but you know. You're there to impress other dudes. Women don't give a shit about your biceps. No, they don't. Are you healthy? I I mean, most of them don't because uh, I I don't know why my wife stayed with me, but I'm definitely not someone (laughs) who's interested in body fat percentage. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's like there's that great uh, Van Morrison song uh, where he says, the girls go by dressed up for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and the boys do the boogie woogie, boogie woogie on the side of the street. I forget what's that song called. Uh, Wild Wild Nights, I think it's called. Um, but yeah, I mean, I so I, I'm basically saying you go to the gym to impress dudes. Like you got a thing, you know. Uh, anyway, that's that's a that's a tangent. Yeah. Why the fuck am I talking about that? Uh, you're uh, saying something about about fearlessness. Oh, the and books, or whatever. right? Yeah, the books, yeah. That that I think you know, for me, the only really motivating um pursuit is to relieve unnecessary suffering right and so that's both of my books are aimed at that and i feel like your work and george and like there's a commonality there you know like you did this bit about like when you when you get up in the morning and you change the date on your suicide note yeah (laughs) yeah just kick the can down the line that's actually a very optimistic joke that's just basically saying like i just put it up i actually have i'm working a new hour right now and so i like to kind of bind themes for me so i never know when i go into it what i'm going to write right and because of how long it took to get out the last special and now covid because i write on stage i'm a very improv-based comic so i'll go up with one idea like i'll literally go up with the word capitalism and be like let your brain go and so that requires a lot of like stage time. And I used to be, before COVID, I was one of these 350, 450 show a year guys, right? But when COVID happened, my son was three and a half and it really gave me a second to sit down and go, you only have this time once. So get your shit together and be a good dad, go on the road a little less. And COVID was what I really needed to like actually teach me to take a break. Um, 
And so when I came back to comedy after COVID, I was like, let's be a little bit more careful. We don't have to put out an hour every two years. We don't have to we do, do the work you want to do. Enjoy Because I was, it was getting to diminishing returns. I was not enjoying it as much. Mm-hmm. Um, post-production on my last special was a nightmare just in terms of time. And there's some technical issues. It took way longer to put out than we wanted. It was hard to find a home for it because a lot of people, because I'm not a famous guy and I don't have a huge fan base, a lot of streaming services just won't touch me because I'm, why? I'm risky. Why bother, right? You could put me on um, that, you know, nobody will probably ever know or very few people will see. They're not going to push me because it's going to be just a pain in the ass for them. There's a million other comedians. Because of the controversial nature of some of your material? Well, I was once told, I don't know, I was once told by a late night uh, television booker, he's like, look, we think you're funny and we want to put you on. But he's like, we have no idea what you're going to do. And I'm like, I'm not insane. Like, I I mean, I will give you a transcript. I've done TV, like, but from the point of view of like, if you have, you know, a thousand comedians to choose from and 500 of them are doing jokes about whatever, like relationships or tacos or whatever, and they're going to be just as funny and they're more funnier, why not just use those comics? You know, why, why? And I totally understand that. I am not bitter about that or frustrated about that. I know what I'm doing. I know I'm making life harder on myself. But I also know that if I can't do this, um, then there's no point in doing it for me. Because I did spend that thing we go back to with approval that Sedaris was saying. So the first sort of 10 years of my career was spent trying to get everyone to like me all the time. Mm. I did have messages. I did have that information in there. But of course, I started when I was 22. So you're a different person at 22 than you are, you know, in your 40s. And so... I kind of was just like, I was much more goofy, much more impression and character based. And I, would, I, I figured out how to be funny pretty quick. I was lucky with that. I had pretty good luck with that. I'm quick on my feet. So the funny part, that was fine. But the actual saying what I want part took me 10 years to figure out how to, because I would have these messages and ideas, but I didn't have the skill set yet. I always look at it like this. It's like, you could be the greatest composer in the world, but if you can't play the piano to the absolute edge of its ability, then you're not going to know exactly what you can do. So you have mm. to be a virtuoso on that piano to know everything that instrument can do before you know if you can write music. You know what I mean? So I had to learn how to be the absolute best stand-up comic I could in any situation, fill that tool belt full of chisels. And so when I get to the point where I wanted to start pushing, and I had um, this kind of like, so in 2004, I did the uh, the uh, Seattle, uh, the San Francisco Comedy Festival, and then the Seattle Comedy Festival uh, comedy competitions back to back to back. And in this San Francisco one, I got scouted by HBO for their festival. Now I didn't know anything about it at the time, and um, and then so I ended up going and doing the HBO Comedy Festival in February of 2005. Now the funny thing is, I had also was supposed to do Just for Laughs that year as well. So for a Canadian, Just for Laughs was the big deal. I didn't know what Aspen was. I had no idea. I knew the name HBO, but I was like, it doesn't matter to me. But they gave me six shows or whatever. But the thing is, something very fortunate that seemed very unfortunate at the time happened. And this is, admitted, you know, I was not even five, just because I started February 8th, 2000. And February 8th, 2005, I was on stage in Aspen. So five years into my career. And I took a year off in there. So four years worth of experience. So I was really green. And at the time, I thought it was unfortunate. I ended up for the first time in my life with like laryngitis. I couldn't, couldn't talk. So everything I did, all the characters and impressions and all that were gone. They were just gone. Right. My superpowers were gone. So I went to Aspen with this like, I don't know the fuck. Like, I'm done anyway. There's no point. And so I just let go of the edge of the pool. And 
it went bonkers. People were just, I left with a stack of business cards four inches high. Like people were just throwing themselves at me because they'd never seen anyone not give a shit at that level. And that kicked off the first little bit in my head. I go, hold on a second. So everyone else is panicking and worrying and nervous as they should be. And I can't because I don't have, I just cannot do what I'm supposed to do. This opportunity, as far as I was concerned, was gone. Like literally could not talk. I had to save my voice all day until I got on stage. I could basically horse whisper and sometimes could get something out. But all of the other stuff I had done at the time was off the table. So it was purely up to this and make it up as you go because I didn't have an act that did that. (laughs) So a shit ton of what I did was improvised and it was just, and I was fucking out of my mind. I was just Did you do crowd work or? or I did everything. I was like, I, I remember picking on some guy that later found out was like some high up studio executive guy because i said he, he looks like he came up with here with a gold mastercard what did i say i said it, it looks like you came up here with a gold mastercard you keep in a brown paper bag so they can't find out the whores you're fucking <laughs> i said don't take too many viagra because the altitude you'll pass out on her they'll think you're dead like just like bang, bang, bang. like we did one in in wagner park and I said, it's Wagner Park. I thought it was Wagner Park. It used to be the Jewish community. So it used to be the Polish community center, but they dealt with that real quick. Anyway, so it's like yeah. all that weird high speed. And so I came out of there with this buzz about me, like, who the fuck is this guy? He's a maniac, yeah. right? Which I didn't understand. Um, and then I had this kind of rigmarole through Hollywood for a few years. And it also taught me the bad side of that, which was like, all of a sudden, um, it was like, you're in the machine now. So you get picked up at the airport in an SUV, you're taking these meetings, you're doing this stuff. And I realized right away, I'm like this, they don't want what I am. They want, they just want me to not be with anyone else or whatever. They just put out this drift net and grab you. And at the time too, you have to understand that YouTube had just happened in like March of that year. So what we have is avenues for Instagram, YouTube, stuff like that. Facebook was brand new. The Dane had done MySpace, which was the thing. So nobody really understood what the internet was capable of doing. The industry was still in the old 80s, 90s model where you're in, there was still pilot season. You're in town for that. I remember recording auditions in Vancouver in my home and having to FedEx the CD, the DVD to them because you couldn't file transfer files that big. Like, that's how old I am. And so uh, I ended up having to move to L.A. and I lived in L.A. for a while and uh, it was miserable. I was just the only sets I was doing were showcase sets of the same material all the time. I was getting angry and angry at stand up. I was hating the fact that I would come home, do road work to make just enough money to go back and feed my Los Angeles addiction. Right. And then the writer strike and the financial crisis, all the other things that happened in a row just basically killed any chance I had of capitalizing on that success. And I came back to Vancouver in 2010 and I was still doing this kind of goofy, the stuff that I did an album called Unfamous, which was my first actual album with uh, Uproar Records back in like the end of 2009, I recorded it in Seattle. And I, uh, and that is very much goofier, silly. There's still messages in there, but it's very much more kind of rounded on the edges. So I had done that. And, I, and I, at 2010, I was 10 years in. And I was like, I'm done. I'm out of stand-up. I can't do this anymore. I hate it. I hated mm. it. Like I despised getting on stage. This thing that I had loved that I'd wanted to do more than anything else uh, just turned my stomach. But I had these dates to run out, right? And so I was like, okay, well, I don't, I don't have a high school education. I don't have any other way of making a living. So I got to figure out how to make this work. So I'm going to do these dates because it's, you know, it's my income. And so I was doing this show around about June of that year, I think. It's a little tiny place up here, a little tiny restaurant that a friend of mine ran, a bar restaurant, ran a comedy show. It's like seats 35 people. Hmm. And uh, notoriously tough crowd. Vancouver's always had notoriously tough crowds, which is one of the reasons why comics coming out of here are pretty strong. But that one was 
bad one. There were so many killers on that lineup. Comics that I respected that were amazing comics. Bomb after bomb after bomb. And I was closing. And my friend James was running it. And uh, he's like, you know, basically just just do what it just get out with your skin intact sort of thing. And I went up and I was doing my act at the time and I was murdering right out of the gate, just full on war. Like they loved it. They were just losing their shit. And about 10 minutes in, I just stopped and I was like, I can't. I'm sorry. I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this. I hate myself for doing it, and I hate you for laughing at it. And I think I think I can't. And I had an absolute full on snap set. Like, but one of those sets where, but I didn't, instead of just walking off stage, I, for some reason, stayed up there and just started talking about mm. what I wanted to talk about. And it, it was neither good nor bad. It was, but it was cathartic as shit. And at the end of the night, it went well enough. But I came off stage and I said to my friend, James, I was like, I really apologize. That was so unprofessional of me to do that. And he's like, are you kidding? He's like, you do that every time you might be a good comic one day. And that was like, Mm. And luckily, I had established enough of a reputation that people who ran clubs and because I still wasn't doing my own shit too much at the time, um, let me get away with it. And I and I I put the impressions and the characters and the voices away. I put them away for five years, six years, just didn't touch them. It's like learning a martial art. You know, jujitsu, great. You want to learn kung fu, you got to forget jujitsu to a degree mm. to learn kung fu, or you're never going to get them both right. And so I did it, and that was that moment of like just a snap but i definitely did the please love me for so long you still do to a degree i mean when you bomb it hurts or when you when it doesn't go well even it, it hurts but because you it's personal right because you're like but i'm showing you who i am and you don't like me but then i also think it's like well if you meet 500 people there's no way you're gonna get along well with 500 people if you met them individually so if you meet them in a group same deal you know what i mean <laughs> and i wouldn't want to because in that 500 people there's probably going to be a few people who are diametrically opposed to what i believe and i don't want them if i if i appeal to them that i'm doing something wrong i'm not saying enough hmm. and so it was a real point where i was like here's the line in the sand i'm i'm, I'm either with me or i'm against me and that was my decision right. and so since then for the last 13 years or so it's been that and it's uh, it's been harder but it's you know got a lot more rewarding <laughs> i'll tell you that and i built a better stronger more engaged fan base because i'm saying something and people, I think, I think that connects with them. And I'm not saying yeah. it in a funny voice, although I'm starting to do now sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I I saw your Rogan, which was awesome. Uh, you, you do these, uh, again, it, this is all Instagram. I haven't seen any yeah. of your specials. I, I don't know. You, oh, really? Okay. You, no, no, you got to tell me. I, I just came across you a couple of weeks ago. You know, and I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram, but I, yeah, yeah. you were coming up like day after day. I, I guess I followed oh, you. That? right away and, and then uh yeah i don't know which one it was it, 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 that i first saw it was something very political it was one of these like you know i this this isn't funny but it is kind of things did i have the man bun was it was it with all the symbols on the back because that was my most no most you're wearing a, a red and black flannel that's my latest special yeah that's my oh, latest okay. that's a, as good as or better than and that was like so I, I released this special in 20 or I recorded a special in 2015, right before I moved to, because I am English. I was born there and I, I grew up in Canada. Uh-huh. So uh, my wife and I decided before we had kids and stuff, let's, let's go spend a year abroad. So we went to England. So right before we left, like literally two weeks before we left, I had this hour kicking around in my head and I'm notorious for not recording material. I never record myself. I'm very bad at it. And I was just going to let this hour go. And my buddy's like, just record it. What the hell are you doing? Do a bootleg, you know, get it, like make it look, get a couple of cameras, just, I can do a silly show. It was a great dive bar that I love to play. And I was like, yeah, let's record it. And then it was 
it's called furious because it literally is me at the absolute teeth clenching spitting of like fuck it like because i'm very much about like it has to be funny it has to be funny if it's not funny it doesn't make sense but i learned that it doesn't have to be a laugh every five seconds you mm. can and as the heavier the concepts get you have to give them time yeah because they're going to miss words and right. so this was very much me exercising that um and so i did that and i and then i put that one out and that's very much like the visceral sort of like this is this is this high point of me learning this style and so the one one I just released a little while ago is more of a combination of the two. It's like, it's still got all the political and social stuff, but I figured out how to, cause I still, I'm a goofy, silly guy. So I've still learned how to work the other side of my personality back into it. So slowly, but surely putting these things together. And that's the path I'm on now, but I'm very proud of um, as good as or better than um, because it, it speaks to a real, it speaks to an accomplishment for me of like, I may not be at the top of Everest, but I'm definitely past base camp now. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that about it. <laughs> You're a little like, lightheaded. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I'm freezing cold and alone. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's that one. And, and, and um, I think you'd enjoy that one too, because it's it's definitely, I talk about, I try to touch on different different topics a little bit here and there. Because I'm also notorious with like, I, I just blast past topics. I'll be like, I'll write like five jokes on something. I'll do it. And then I'll get bored with it. And I'll be like, oh, over here. And a lot of comics are like, you're out of your mind. Why don't you just spend... They're like, just do an hour on that. And I was like, right. but I don't want to because I get bored. <laughs> so yeah. I'm trying to meter that too. I'm trying to learn not to do that. So it's all a process, man. It's like, just, it's growing up, you know? And you're in, you said you're in your forties now? I'm 46. Yeah. Damn. You look good. For yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Haggard old comic. <laughs> it's weird. It's like my comedy speaks to burnout, but my skin speaks to moisturizer. So. <laughs> exactly. It does. You, you're doing a lot of like placenta on your face or something. Right? Well, is this what happens if you haven't had a real job since 2002? So, like, <laughs> right. And even I mean, then, the job I had when I started comedy as a call center, I'm, I'm a soft, soft boy. So, yeah. So, you mentioned you don't have a high school education. What happened? No, I dropped out when I was uh, 16 years old in grade 11. Um, and that's part of it, too, is like uh, bullying. Were you, did you grow up in B.C. or in England? Yeah, or? I, I grew up. So I moved to Canada. We moved to Canada when I was five. And it was my, my mom and my dad and my brother and I. And uh, I come from an entertainment family because my parents um, met and formed a band in the late 60s, early 70s. And they toured all over Europe. My dad was a. Uh, like a genius pianist like he was from when he was three years old um but he had a painful love for Burt Bacharach and and <laughs> that kind of thing so he was that's what he played and my mom was a great singer and um and so they toured and uh and then around about so the mid-70s my brother was born and my dad was like time for a real job grown-up job and mm. so he went to be an optician which he was trained for so he trained to be an optician and then went crazy and went in the band and met my mom and did all this cool stuff and they traveled and, you know, musicians and stuff. And then he went to be a grown up again. And then they were like, we got to get out of England. Because at that time, too, in the late 70s, early 80s, England was particularly rough. Yeah. And so they just didn't see any opportunity there for them and their kids. And so um, they basically had a choice between uh, Canada and Tasmania. So that would have been an interesting, <laughs> interesting different yeah. difference. Um, but we moved to Canada and, uh, and uh, I grew up. We moved here when I was just just turned five and I grew up here. So, you know, uh, in outside of Vancouver, just outside of Vancouver, about, you know, 35, 40 minutes away. So I've been based here pretty much my whole life. 
And uh, I, I think I do think it's probably the reason I am a comedian is because of the family that I came from. Um, and the the because my mom then, you know, immediately got back into theater because she had a, a solo career in the late 70s, early 80s, which was quite successful. Um, but then kind of felt hit a wall with that. So when she came to Canada, she stopped singing so much and went back to acting, theater, movies, TVs, and stuff like that. And so that's kind of what I grew up in. So yeah. entertaining was always part of it. I was on stage when I was seven years old. Like, it was just always part of my life was to be in entertainment. So by the time I uh, was in my teens in high school, I kind of already knew I wasn't going to be a quote-unquote normal dude. Like, it just wasn't what I what I was. And, you know, I guess... I was absolute maniac ball of energy and like just jokes, 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 silly. And so over time, it just translated to uh, get out of, you know, find a, find a place to use this, whatever it is you have, find a place to use it. And so uh, I wandered in and saw stand up for the first time, um, like the very end of the nineties, 99 or something. And I was like that. And then when I did it the first time, I was like, I don't know. I don't care what that's, this is what I do now. Like, it's just the most amazing, it's the most amazing um, kind of live or die by what you say, complete. Uh, it's, it's, I don't want to say daredevil because it's obviously not like that, but it has this, it's, it's like being an entertainment, um, like guerrilla warfare. Like you just show up. <laughs> it's just like, and stand-up comedy is really, I mean, it is to my mind, the most versatile performance art, I think, in terms of what you can get away with, because it literally is just talking to people um, and um, reading them and figuring them out. And there's endless combinations and possibilities of what can happen. And it's just this great puzzle. And and I was already, because I realized by the time I was like 16, I was like, I'm not going to be, education's not going to, like, I obviously wish I'd gone to university or stuff like that. Particularly one day my kids can ask me the awkward question. It's like, so did you graduate? I'll be like, <laughs> No, but your mother did. She's got a degree, so go talk to her. But, yeah. but I really luckily found one of the very few careers where you don't need, you know, that level of education. It wasn't that I stopped learning things. I kept trying to, but just the formal education and I just didn't, I was always a pushback, pretty hard guy. And school just seemed a lot more about rule following than learning to me. Yeah. And then and then the social environment I was in was so miserable that I was just like, well, what am I doing here? I'm getting up in the morning, going to this place where I'm, I'm treated like an idiot by the teachers. I treated like a robot by the administration in terms of be here at this time, leave at this time and everything. And treated like shit by most of the students because I ask questions and use big words. So what the fuck is the point of doing this if I'm just <laughs> yeah. miserable? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they, and they damn near broke me. They really did. Like it, it breaks your, it's the, especially at that time in the early nineties, late eighties, it's designed to break your spirit to make you a good robot. And I just didn't, didn't want to play. So well, I yeah, I mean everything about the 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 sort of asking hard questions, talking about things people are afraid to talk about, you know, entering into taboo areas, all that kind of stuff is antithetical to you know keeping a class of thirty five kids under oh, yeah. control. You know, yeah, I've yeah. been at I, I taught briefly high school, and the last fucking thing you need is a want to be comedian. You know, like that is not what you fucking <laughs> need in your classroom. <laughs> I was also one of those guys that was just like, I would just ask probably the most annoying, like just ask questions. Cause I just, I was like, because of course this was pre-internet. So it wasn't like I could go look this up. So I would be like, if you're a teacher, you need to know this stuff because I need to ask this stuff. Yeah. I was like, I can go use the Dewey Decimal System and the microfiche and try and look up the books or I can ask you. And so I would just, I would just ask, I would just learn. I would just be like, and I remember I had uh, one history teacher and he was great. And he 
would just be like, what else you got? And I'd be like, I'd ask this and he goes, I mm. don't know, let me look it up. And he was the first teacher I'd ever hear say, I don't know, let me look it right. up. Right. And I was like, that was a really important thing. I was like, that guy, he was incredibly smart, but he was also aware. And that's when I realized too, is like the most intelligent people are often the people who are the most aware of what they're lacking. Yeah. You know, when they say that, that, that the problem is, is that dumb people think they're smart and smart people think they're dumb. And that is kind of, and it, and it taught me really early lessons of like humility uh, is a really good connection point because that opened a door for a connection point with that as opposed to being this faceless wall. And I, I try to employ that in my comedy because like people talk about sometimes um, humbly I'm given comparisons to Hicks, which is great, but Hicks was a great comic and, and absolutely his legacy is, is undeniable. And what he did for the art form is huge, but there is one, one thing that I've always parted ways with him on, and it, it's partially a function of his time, where he grew up <clears throat> comedically in Texas, and what he was dealing with at the time. And most of the comics he was on the show with were like, Chaplin, what's the deal? You know, those people. And he wasn't like that. But one of the things that drove me crazy was that Hicks would always say, you people, hmm. you people are like this. Right. And I don't do that. I try and go, we are. Right. We are like, I'm no better than you. I'm not trying to point down at you. I'm just like, we're in this together. I just happen to be a guy facing slightly a different direction than everybody else because mm-hmm. I've had the privilege of time. And I, I'm very aware of the luck that I've had in my life to be in the position I'm in to do what I do. And I try to do my best with that. Right. And so I was talking with a comic a few years ago and he was saying, he's like, when he first moved to Vancouver, he was like, yeah, man, he goes, he goes, I saw you. He's like, first time I saw you, he's like, he's like, you just blew my mind. He's like, you're doing these things. And he's like, you're saying this stuff. And it was, he was being really complimentary. And then he goes, and then uh, this other comic told me how funny you used to be. And, it, and I know he was saying that as like in a compliment, but then I was like, oh man, like, like I, I took that in a really weird way. Cause I was like, okay, so I was funnier, but who was I funnier for before? And what was I doing with it? Cause being good at making jokes is is not hard. You can learn to do it. Being funny is, like you said, banana peel. That's still hilarious. Like people falling over is funny. Fart jokes are funny. All this stuff is funny. It's it's what you do with that ability. And so all of it doesn't make sense if you're not doing it for the right reasons. And so I may not be on paper as, you know, laugh a minute, you know, gut busting shit yourself funny that I that apparently I was. Uh, you know, but I am to me now um, doing what I think is important, more important and has the legacy to it and, and work that I want to produce. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and so I think that's, I look at it, you know, motel art, this, this, the pictures on motel walls, you know, those have been reproduced thousands of times. No one ever thinks about it. You know, you can, you can suffer and never sell a painting in your life, but it's exactly what you wanted to make. Then it matters more and it's right. worth more. Right. And I found that in my connection with my fan base too. Like I had a little fan base before I did this kind of shift and a, a lot of them came with me and some of them didn't, they couldn't make the shift. And I don't blame them. I don't yeah. blame them because I really pulled a fast one. But and I, uh, I, some of them have come back. I feel like, you know, I've heard, I've heard that story that you told, um, told by, other comics george carlin told that story mm-hmm. right george carlin was the suit and tie the yeah. hippy dippy weatherman you know haha johnny carson show yeah and he hit a wall and he was like i can't fucking do that anymore that's not me yeah. that's not real yeah. vietnam war is happening i mean i yeah. think about muhammad ali you know 
like there's there's a commonality with Muhammad Ali and George Carlin and people who looked at the world and said this shit is too fucked up mm-hmm. to just keep going for the easy laughs like i need to tell the truth whatever else mm-hmm. i'm doing you know whoever i'm boxing in the ring or you know whatever shows i get on or don't go on if i'm not telling the truth i can't fucking live with myself because this shit is fucked up mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. and i've got a platform so i need to say the truth as i see it there's there's a responsibility there yeah yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's the difference between, you know, a fucking puppet and and a true voice, uh, someone who's who's actually, in my opinion, worth listening to. And I think you're you're also on to something with the humility, because and I'm sure you don't you don't want to talk shit about other comics. But mm-hmm. uh, when I see comics, <clears throat> Chappelle get uh too full of themselves i can't fucking listen to it anymore i'm so tired of of being lectured by some dude who walked away from a big contract and thinks that makes him a fucking wise man i i think i i totally understand what you're saying and i do agree i think that there is um that there are a few comics particularly uh, you know that success uh, can poison you and uh sometimes you know hunger is necessary and also humility is necessary and i think one of the problems is um if you start to believe that you are infallible and what you say is golden and everyone should listen because you are presented with five ten thousand people at a time who hang off every word it's it's addictive yeah. i mean there is a there is a certain point at which and i do it on one of my the very beginning of my special furious i do something called hitler in a room where i try and make people agree with something that they completely shouldn't agree with just to prove that I can do it to show them how malleable they are. And then, so I make them get mad at the sun. I come out, I don't say anything. I come out and I start with this whole, let's fucking destroy the sun. The sun's a piece of shit. And I put jokes in there and everything. And at the end I go, and I I go for like a minute and a half, two minutes. I go, who's with me? Destroy the sun. And the audience goes, yeah. And I go, well, you're fucking stupid. We need the sun. We need the sun to live. And that's how Fox (laughs) news works. And that right there. So I show them right away. I go, this is how easy it is to make you people because you're smart people, but in a group, you're just like any other primate. You got to move together. And so I think when you have the ability to do that to a room and when you have the ability to do that to tens of thousands of people and you have money that, and celebrity and status that elevates you above other people, it breaks your brain and it kills that humility. And I think comedy, I think comedy exists best in a space of not too much. I mean, you need this kind of balance between the arrogance and hubris to get on stage and do that. To yeah. be like, I should be standing and talking to you people, but the humility to be like, I shouldn't be here. Like, it's this really yeah. weird balance yeah. of like checking yourself. And I've noticed this with some comedians where like their first few albums, first few were they're so good, progressively getting better, connecting. And then when they kind of break through, um, they take a step or two back. It's pretty common because they start playing to the audience they have, start trying to build on that, start many of them find their way back and it's great. And it's refreshing. Some of them don't, some of them just keep going down that rabbit hole and doubling down, tripling down. And the more negativity they receive, the more they're like, it's not me. The children are wrong. Like they kind of do that. And so it's kind of like, yeah, they kind of push. And that becomes, I think more of an, of a battle of ego and an internal thing. And, And that I've never experienced it. I've never been famous, so I can't speak to it, but I should imagine it's a difficult, difficult thing. That's why I'm glad that if, if I ever do break through, I'm much older now and I have much more 
life under me and much more experience and hopefully the ability to, to sit back and, and, and be like, okay, this is great. You're reaching more ears. And there's going to be a lot that comes with that. I think, I think Bill Murray said, when you get famous, you have about two years of turning it around and becoming human again. Otherwise you, you'll never make it. He's like, you just become a piece of shit. And as we say now about Chevy Chase, he's like, it's like che- Chevy Chase got so famous and he just didn't pull out of it. And he just was a piece of shit for the rest of his life. So I think, I think there's that kind of thing where, yeah, I think comedians, you need to remember why you are doing it. You're not doing it for everyone to agree with you. You're doing it to get the point across, get the message across, say what you say. And especially with comics like Chappelle who are pushing really hard with social issues and pushing really hard with stuff, you need to understand why you're doing that. You're not doing it to hear yourself speak. You're doing it for them to listen. And that's a big fucking difference. And so, yeah, I think that that as long as you keep yourself aware and be self-aware and understand how tenuous your position is and how hard you have to work because it is very, the more difficult topics you talk about, like I often say I'm a high degree of difficulty comedian because you're not going to want to bring your stagette to my show. It's not going to work for you if you're going to show up and be like, let's have drinks and see a comedian. And I'm like, you know why capitalism is insidious and destroying <laughs> your lives? Like, that's garbage. Like, you don't want to, <laughs> you know, on me. Yeah. But I understand that too. And I also know that makes me a little bit more, I'm just slowly but surely kind of, like I would say, I demand a lot of my audience, but I demand a lot of myself. So hopefully we can kind of meet. Because yeah. I do believe that there are people out there who want what I do. I do believe there are, and I we found them. I mean, we're having this conversation. So, and that's amazing. And and, and twenty years ago, it would have been a lot harder because social media wouldn't have existed in the way it does. Right. And I've only just started figuring out how to use it because I'm a dinosaur. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> now you got to hire a millennial for that shit. Hmm. Um, like I get my seven year old to do it for me yeah, soon. So. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of years. Um. There's a there's a, a an essayist. Paul Graham is his name. He's actually uh, uh, like a Silicon Valley billionaire, probably. Uh, he's one, you know, cool. an early investor in Facebook and Uber and all that shit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's just a really, really smart guy. And he, he writes essays and just publishes them online just because that's what he feels like doing, you know? Um, and I always come back to one of his essays. It, it's It's a really interesting idea. He says... If you look back at the 70s, you, you look back in history anytime and you see in the 50s, uh, people thought homosexuality was a fucking mental disorder. Right. And they were giving kids electroshock therapy to cure them. Uh, you know, people 100 years earlier thought slavery was totally understandable because black people are inferior. And if we don't you know, put them to work, mm-hmm. they, they will know they need the guidance and the protection and all mm-hmm. that. You look back to the 70s, people thought like feathered hair and bell bottoms were cool right so like whatever period you look at there's something that's just like what the fuck were they thinking right and Mm -hmm. so his his sort of intellectual exercise in this essay is how is there a way is there a methodology that we could figure out that we could use to look at our own time and sort of preemptively figure out what's bullshit like, what are we mm-hmm. going to be embarrassed by 20 years from now or 30 or 100? Yeah. It's a really interesting essay. And one of the things that he talks about is he says, the place to look for the answers is in the things you're afraid to say out loud. Because mm-hmm. the taboo, the sort of social agreement that polite conversation does not go there is where these 
the secrets lie. It's where it's where mm-hmm. the crimes and the sins and the evil lurks, right? Mm-hmm. So you think about like the Catholic Church, you could never talk about sexuality. Like I think the priest is fucking the kids. Like you could never say yeah. that, right? For yeah. centuries, you couldn't even yeah, 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 yeah. think that. And of course, that's what allowed it to happen, right? Yeah. Um, so I just I think it's really interesting, like you know, the sort of conceptual um perspective on comedy that that you and I are talking about here. I think it's really important, not only for the comic who who has this perspective to feel integrated with him or herself, but I think there's a really important social function to this, you know, mm-hmm. that that going talking about the thing you're not supposed to fucking talk about has a cleansing healing protective function in a society i think you're 100 right and i think that's why um this is such an interesting time because uh so a lot of people are like a lot there's there's comedians who are like and, and people who aren't comics who don't understand are like, oh, you can't say anything on stage anymore. No, you, you can. You can say anything you've ever, ever wanted to say on stage. Um, you used to not be able to. And, and when a comic says that, I just send them Lenny Bruce's mugshot. I'm like, just get your shit together. You know right, what I mean? Like right. these people, like Carlin was on Nixon's list for fuck's sake. Like that's real consequences. Like if right. you've never been put in handcuffs by the state, if you, if you, it's like anything else. You can say anything you want. You have accountability for what you say. All right. And and the thing is, is you have to get good at what you do good enough that you can that even if people don't necessarily agree with what you're saying, they understand why you're saying it. And hopefully the humor is there. There's a, a fantastic comedian who I believe is one of the best ever named Doug Stanhope. And he ah, love him. I've seen says, him live. Yeah, he's in, he's incredible. He's incredible. And he says and does things that you're like, there is absolutely no way that should work. But it's because he's <laughs> such a master of what we do. Yeah, he's such a genius at it that he's like, "I'm going to make you, I'm going to make this work, regardless." And because he is fearless, he doesn't care. Now, part of that is that he plays to audiences that understand him now. But he's been doing that for twenty five, thirty years. Like he's been this guy walking people in clubs for years. But it takes that long to get that good. And so, what a lot of people are. Now, when they say, oh, you can't say what you say on stages, some of them are people who are far too young and far too new at comedy. And like, I should be able to get on stage and say this. Well, you can say that. But why are you saying it? And how are you saying it? Mm. So if you don't have a because context and intent are the most important things. And if, if people can tell your intent is wrong, I just want to say this because I want to say this. Well, they're going to call you on it. And if the context doesn't make sense and it doesn't have any purpose, then they're going to call you on that as well. So some of it is flat out lack of experience. They just don't know. They've they've watched a ton of Rogans. They've listened to a bunch of Marins. They they they've watched a bunch of comedy specials. They think they have the right to do these things, which they do, but they don't have the experience to do it, and so they fail. And then they blame the audience because how dare it? It couldn't be me. Then I think you get uh, comedians who are a little bit out of step, maybe comedians who are the generation before mine or a little bit before that, who kind of could coast on easier shit. Like, and I can't drive, you know, that kind of thing, get away with it. And now like, I can't be like that. No, because you were never that good. And you got away with it for a long time because the standards were lower. But human beings, hopefully, are marching slowly towards progress. And you 
have to keep you're only relevant as a comedian to your generation and maybe the one either side if you're lucky if you want to be a truly multi-generational long-term comic like a george like a richard like the lenny like whatever it is you have to really really expand what you do and you have to work really fucking hard at it and it is hard work and people don't see stand-up as hard work because they think it's just getting up and talking well i'm funny great i'm funny to my friends great be funny to a thousand people who have no idea who you are that's how you and so that is when people tell me i can't say whatever i want when a guy like doug stanhope says you can't say whatever you want anymore then we have a problem but he will never say that because he can so it's 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 kind of this thing of being like what is a good comedian and what is not a good comedian well comedy is super subjective but there is a skill set that underlies it all right it's the ability to take the thing and make it relatable and funny in a way that the majority of people can connect with and see the humor in it. Telling a joke to a group of people is a really weird experience. Like the first time you take up a brand new joke, like I, I just wrote this joke and I, uh, I was, I was back, I was just hanging out with some comics before I did a spot at this local, uh, it was just fucking around. And I was like, yeah, I'm, just, I'm like, I'm just, cause I am just about to turn 46. I go, I'm too old to kill myself now. Cause no one gives a shit. And then I went on stage and I literally, that was, and I went on stage and I go, you know, the thing is, is like, I, I'm not suicidal anymore, guys, because if I kill myself, I'm 46, right? Like, if you kill yourself when you're young, people are like, oh, he was only 27, the potential. But if you kill yourself at 46, people are like, dude, just wait. You know what I mean? Like, that idea of like, so to me, that concept of, and then it works. And then you're like, oh, shit, that works. So this idea that I had that I found funny, that a couple of my friends laughed at, who are also dark fucks, then you go out and you make it funny to 120 people who don't know you have never seen you have no idea what you're talking about that is bridging that gap this is what i find funny how can i make it to be what you find funny that's a, to me a great example of going in the right direction there are times when it doesn't work. and but if you if you take a time that it doesn't work and go well it's them that's the problem well occasionally yeah occasionally but most of the time no figure it out just just shake you know they didn't, they didn't build an airplane and not use a wind tunnel. Like you go through and you change it, you fix things and you move things. It's engineering and you make it better and you make it perfect. And that's why, you know, these comics who have been doing comedy for like six months and they put out a special. I mean, what are you doing? Give yourself time to learn because you're, <laughs> you can't take that off the internet. You it's know, not that special. Like, <laughs> exactly. Someone's like, this is my third set. I, I put it on Reddit. I'm like, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> I, you know, I'm I, so glad they didn't have that when I started. <laughs> I think of it like, uh, like the difference between um, picking up gold when you happen to see it when you're walking through the desert and stopping there and saying, "Oh, there's gold on the surface. I'm going to get my pickaxe and start digging." Because like when I see a, a good comic, often it'll be like the first line like oh don't kill yourself now because nobody gives a shit and you're in your 40s and it's like okay that's funny i could have thought of that i mean i probably have thought of that yeah but then you take it to the guy at the old folks home who wants to kill himself and he's 101 and everybody's totally confused and like that's yeah 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 you stopped and started digging there whereas i just keep walking right yeah and that's the difference between being funny for your friends and being a professional, you stop that's, and dig. That's a really good analogy. I really like that because that's exactly what it is. It's like, it's like you found the little bit that works. Are you willing to put in the effort to see how far? And are you willing to accept the limitations of what your brain can do? 
there are I've I've tried every different style of comedy just to fiddle around and fun with it and just to see just you know over time I've tried all the sorts of different things. I mean, obviously you do what you do, but then sometimes you'll do a show where you do characters. Sometimes you'll just, mm. oh, I'm going to do stories. And sometimes I'm going to do this. I've learned what I do and I've learned what my limitations are. Like, I'm not particularly good at dirty jokes. I just not, it's not the way my brain works. So I decided to write, uh, I've got booked on this dirty show. Like normally when we do dark and dirty shows, I'm the dark guy. So they mm. put all these dirty guys on and then I come out and I make everyone just like, like <laughs> real Goya shit. But right. then, but then, <laughs> give, give it up for Saturn devours his sunshine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I decided to try and write dirty jokes, and I was like, "How can you write dirty jokes?" And then so I sat down and wrote dirty jokes. And what I liked about that was it's not necessarily a thing I do, but it's nice to know that I can do it. And when I watched them, because it was filmed for thing, I looked at it and go, "Oh, that's still me telling this." Like I'm not trying to. Be, I'm still doing what I do. I'm just doing it in a slightly different way. And I think that to me, it gave me a good feeling of like, I'm centered and I understand who I am and, and everything springs from this main trunk now. You and have a so, voice. Exactly. And I think a lot of comics, a lot of younger comics don't have a voice. And so they, they're just pulling levers and like, they're like, Oh, I love Bill Burr. So I'm just going to be Bill Burr. Well, it's like, no, Bill Burr took 30 something years to be Bill Burr. And, yeah. and, and, you, yeah. and what you do too, when you do that is you disrespect the amount of time that poor motherfucker sat in a car and drove to a college cafeteria gig. Like you have to understand how much time is involved in this. It's, it's like, I mean, most of the overnight successes you see are 20 plus years in. I mean, look, Louis CK was in his forties. Bill Burr was in his forties. Doug Stanhope was in his forties. These are people late thirties. These are people who like hit George when he actually had the flip was mid to late thirties, which for his generation was, you know, might as well have been his fist. And honestly, to me, I think George did his best work well into his fifties and sixties. Right. And so that speaks to an evolution of a man who was clearly one of the best ever and was like, I'm not satisfied with this. I'm going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And if yeah. he just sat back and go, the audience is stupid. It's not my fault. We never would have had the George we know. And so, I, yeah, that's a weakness. Yeah. I love the, the Louis CK story he told um, about how he was, I think he was like in his mid thirties and he'd been playing, you know, the comedy seller, but, you know, occasionally just like that was yeah. as high as he got. And he was doing Chinese restaurants and birthday parties. And he was and he had that moment, like you described earlier, where he's like, I don't know how to do anything else. I have no education. Yeah. What the fuck am yeah. I going to do? And he yeah. was really at the end of his rope. And he and um, he heard I think it was a fresh air conversation uh, with George Carlin. And he pulled the car off the side of the road and George talked about how every year he threw away everything and started fresh. Yeah. And Louis was like, well, fuck. Cause he'd been building up his set over like 10 years and was yep. doing the same shit yep. and just yep. adding and tweaking. And then he was like, well, this isn't working. Fuck it. I'll try it. And he started throwing away everything and, you know, like yeah. coming up with new material and it took off. And it, it gets yeah. back to what you were saying earlier. You, you, you sort of apologetically described it as a high wire act or something like that. You know, there's high risk. Um, but I think it's true. And I think that that ties into what you were saying or what both of us were saying about how arrogance and confidence and a sense of safety undermines the comedic creative process because you're mm -hmm. no longer worried about losing your audience because 
you know, you've got the Chappelle sized audience, you got, you know, 20 million people who are going to tune in to see whatever the fuck you do, even if you're just sitting on a stool talking about how fucking brilliant you are, you still have the audience, you're still getting that Netflix money. Uh, so there's no danger. So you don't need to be sharp and true and honest, and you don't need to to do that growth that you're talking about that these guys did. I saw talking about you you mentioned Stanhope. I saw Stanhope. He did he didn't play when I was living in LA. By the way, I did the same thing you did. Mm-hmm. I I wasted three years of my life in LA listening yeah. to people tell me I was gonna be famous and I was I was gonna be the uh, Anthony Bourdain of sex. That was my thing. Oh, there you go. Wow. Because I wrote a book about sex and it's kind of funny. And they were like, "Okay, yeah, yeah. hey, you've got the star power and all this shit." Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so um, I saw Stanhope outside of L.A. somewhere because he didn't like doing clubs in L.A. because he thought the crowds didn't really know him. So he would do yeah, like yeah. a shopping mall in Ventura or something. That sounds about right. And uh, I saw him do 20 minutes on rape. Yeah. Yeah. And it killed. He was so funny. And part of it was exactly what you said. It's like, is he going to pull this off? Is he actually going to get this audience laughing at gang rape? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Have you, have you seen that? that Yeah. That's the, the, the Indian gang rape. Yeah. Where he goes, and he did that in Vancouver, and uh, it was a few years ago now. And I, I had opened for him the night before, and oh, then no I was shit. there with my friend Mace, who's good friends with Stanhope. And so Mace was backstage. We were at a theater called the Rio, and and I'd come by the next night just to hang out because I hadn't actually seen the show properly because I'd opened for him, but then I was still kind of hosting. And mm. and uh, so the next night, I stood out front and I watched, and he got to that bit, um, which I don't recall if he did the night before, if he did it in the same way. And this is an audience of 400 people who were Stanhope fans who had paid like 70 bucks to see him or whatever. Like these are people who are committed and he gets into that bit and you can feel the audience just pull back. And he's, it's in the middle of the set too, so he's been killing and you can feel the audience just pull back. And even I'm like, what the fuck is happening here, Doug? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. and I'm just, because he's leaving it out there and he's letting it hang and he's pushing it further yeah. and further. And then I actually started hearing this woman go, nope. No, like, and I was kind of like, I don't blame her because I don't know what he's doing. Like, is he doing this whole, and then he, he master of just stretching it to the absolute edge. And then he goes, so you have to ask yourself, Vancouver, what are you more okay with racism or rape? And the audience <laughs> that. fucking yeah. lost it. And because it was such a tension release and it was yeah. such a pointing out everything about sensibilities and what you consider is wrong, what you consider is wrong. And, and I texted mace backstage and i was like he's a genius and mace is like yeah he really is and i was like that was one of the most incredible things i've ever seen in terms of stand stand up because he was so okay with it not working and this is a guy who has things to lose he has a i mean he is he's he's not hugely hugely famous he is boutique famous but the people that love him love him like you wouldn't believe. And he was alienating those people, which is yeah. really hard to do because Stanhope fans are maniacs. And when he did that and he pulled it off, I was like, not only does he not give a fuck, he's the best at not giving a fuck because he is just like, oh, I'm going to do the thing I want to do. And I don't care. I don't care if you've been with me since the beginning. I don't care if this is your first show. I don't give a fuck if you won tickets. I don't care. This is what I do. And I do this. And if you like this, this is the only place to get it. 
And if you don't like this, off you go. Yeah. And that was to people who were devotees. And he did not. I saw him last time he came through town. I had just come in from doing some shows about six hours away. And uh, they were. it was one of those nights where I went with an old buddy of mine that I'd known since I started. It was just a couple of old dudes on the road having the best time. Like, we just have fun. Had this little tiny boutique place because I've been working this hour. So what I do when I try and put together a new hour is just play play markets I'm not normally in and small rooms. People that don't know me, people that, you know, which isn't hard to find. <laughs> but just like people that don't know me because I want to see if it works for the general, you know, population and stuff. And they were great shows and we had so much fun. And then up early and I drove all the way back down to make it feeling real good about myself. And I was like, I'm going to go see Stanhope's afternoon show because he didn't know what's coming. I didn't tell him. And uh, a buddy of mine had a ticket. I'm like, I'm just because I didn't think I'd make it. And I was like, I'm making mm. it. And I, I, I sat there and, and Doug came out and um, it was the best hour and a half of stand-up comedy I've ever seen. And it was so humbling to watch someone that like when you're feeling good about what you did and you're like, oh, man, I tore the roof off that place last night. And then you watch him come out and like, it is not e- we're not even in the same game. You know, <laughs> this guy is just insane. But that comes with years and years and years and years of having singular vision and understanding what you are and, and having a healthy degree of I don't give a fuck. But also that humility, because he talks about it, I think, on one of his albums about how he stays up late at night Googling himself looking for negative because because you weirdly. So he still has that. And I think that's also necessary because if it wasn't necessary, he wouldn't bother putting in the punchline at the end that brought the audience all together. He'd just be like, this is what I think. I don't care. Which is, I think, where you get sometimes with comics like Chappelle and stuff is they just miss that last bit. Right. It's like, hey, you can say what you want, but make it make sense to it. Tell me why you're saying it. Teach me. And, and, and re- yeah. yeah, reward me for coming down. I would say yeah. the audiences, like, like, I'll take them, like, I will take them a certain place, but I will, I will, if I let them down on that trip, then I can't blame them for not following me for the next joke or the next joke after the next joke after that. So it all has to make sense and it all has to be, if I'm just going to get up there and say something without a point to it or out a joke to it particularly, then what am I doing? I'm just bloviating, right? But if I get out there and I'm like, I'm going to say these things and then at the end it's going to make sense. And then at the end it's going to be funny. And the end, it, and so that's like that war with the sun thing. You come out, I yell about the sun. There's some jokes in there and everything. But ultimately it's just this insane rant about the sun. It doesn't make any sense. But at the end, I tie it all together. I explain what I'm doing. I set them up for the energy they're going to see, the kind of material they're going to see, the level of thinking that's going to be required and attention that's going to be required, and it's going to be funny. Right. And as long as I can do all those things, then I'm doing my job. Because yeah. that is my job. My job is to be entertaining. Above and beyond all else. Inside that, humor is an incredible delivery system for a message. It's so good. It's yeah. so good. You know? I think, you know, like unlike you, I, I hated high school, but once I got to college, I I did very well, and you know, like that was my. I think world. I would have liked it. I think I would have liked that. Yeah, so it's a very different world. Like in high school, being smart means you don't get laid. In college, being smart means you do, and that's that's the huge difference right there. You know, I mean, getting back to Rogan, <laughs> that's a big difference. Yeah, it's a big difference. <laughs> And, and, you know, you're smart, I'm smart. So you just had to hold on until it paid off, you know? Um, you know, I, I said to Rogan, like, I've got, you know, gay friends who are totally buff. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, if if there was a good chance of me getting a blowjob from a woman I never met every time I go to the gym, I'd be down there every day. I mean, I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd be the fucking Hulk, you know? I mean, come on. <laughs> but... um what was I saying? Oh, college. 
So for a while, I I I was on the career path of being a, a professor, and I've had some really good teachers. And it occurs to me that the teachers I love the most and who taught me the most were funny. Mm-hmm. And the comedians that I love the most are teachers. There's this overlap where mm-hmm. there's this awareness of like, I want to convey information to you that I think is really important is going to help you. There's a sincerity and a generosity. And I'm going to do it in the way that maybe is a lot of work for me, but I'm going to make it as easy as possible for you, right? And there's mm-hmm. that generosity of spirit. And and it's the funny teachers have it and the thinking comics have it. It's, it's that mm-hmm. overlap of smart, funny, generous, you know, there's... And, you know, and, and Stanhope, getting back to the beginning of our conversation, that dude's got a broken heart. It's totally... Mm-hmm broken you can see yeah. him bleed you know i i have yeah. a, a good friend named jake johansson who is a was, oh i love jake johansson so yeah 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 Jake's, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. one of my favorite funny. guys incredibly funny yeah yeah um so i saw him i've seen him perform many times but he does like a an annual show at the improv in hollywood and uh you know this was three or four years ago. And he's, he's out on the road and, you know, he's, he's doing new material, but he's kind of semi-retired and uh, you know, he's, he's in that, that sort of neither here nor there world uh, professionally. But anyway, he goes out and he does an hour and it was just like, I hang out with this guy all the time. He's a buddy of mine and watching him on stage. It was like, it was like watching a magician, except they weren't tricks. It was real. He was the way he controlled the energy in the room, the pace he'd bring it up, but you can't hold it up there for all night. Right. So you let him down, let him rest a little bit, slow it down, you know, put more space and let them think and relax and then bring them back up. And then it was, it was masterful. And it occurred to me, you know, cause I, my books are about prehistory. I think a lot about how humans lived before civilization about pre mentioned primates several times i i can yeah, tell yeah. you anything you want to know about monkey balls i, I am an expert <laughs> on primate reproductive that's why joe had you on <laughs> yeah the first time um, he's, huge into monkey balls. <laughs> he's, he's into monkey balls and and everything primate related um but anyway uh You know, it occurred to me that the ability to stand by the fire and make people laugh might be right back there with prostitution as the oldest profession. You know, well, well, we're similar. The hours are kind of the same. I think exactly. It's a Um, night job. You sleep in late. Exactly. Yeah. Not a lot of people getting up at 7 a.m. <laughs> right. You don't want to wake people up with your jokes, right? Although well, a blowjob, you know, waking up again, with a blowjob. Prostitutes don't have to deal with agents, but I guess they do, right? So it's like it's the same deal. It's the same, <laughs> same deal. Yeah. I uh I think that's incredible because what you said about like it's like you know the tricks, but it's actually magic is like amazing. It's, it's an amazing thing to hear as a performer to have someone who knows you. Um, there's nothing I like more than when some people see my act, like people who I hang out with and stuff, they come and see my stand up and it kind of confuses them a little bit. And they're like, 
I didn't because who I am on stage is who I am. I just fiddle with the mixer a little bit, right? Like there's certain things I can't say as because without the context or without because there is a there is kind of an invulnerability that you get from standing on stage. So even though you have this kind of inherent, um, you know, you're alone, and a lot of people say you know public speaking and stand up scares them because you're by yourself up there. But it also is kind of a force field because you're like, okay, these people are all facing this direction. I'm facing this direction, right? I'm a little bit elevated usually. Usually I have a microphone. Usually there's lights. Depends on the gig. But I have this. So I'm facing this way. So they are giving and they do want you to succeed most of the time. It's very rare that they don't. Most of the time they actually want it to work. Their level of patience is sometimes wavers. But you are given the privilege to talk to a group of people about whatever you want for a certain amount of time. That is a huge deal. And they are there to listen and often paid money to listen. So given the opportunity to do that, you have to have respect for that. But you also have to understand that like, that's not only is that a privilege, but it, it's like, it's a, it's a luxury. It's a gift. You're like, you mean I can say the things that like, other people just yell this in traffic or they like, you know, scream it while they're playing whatever video games, whatever. They just yeah. think about it in the head. They go, fucking people spending a line at the goddamn bank and banks taking all my money. And I'm up on stage going, the bank, take all your fucking money. And they're like, yeah. like oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so what you're doing is you're just you're just speaking to the part of them that they keep quiet. You said earlier about, um, you know, the, the, the things in the shadows is kind of what what we need to do. Like the, the stuff that society suppresses and hides is sometimes the stuff. And I think that if you're the kind of comedian that wants to talk about and those things i think your job is to kind of you don't have to flip the rock completely over but you got to lift it up enough for people to finish pushing it up themselves that's all you're doing mm. it's, it's you're just being like it is okay to talk about this topic and and that's why like my my next stuff is is very dark it's the darkest hour i've written i, I ran it for the first time a couple of weeks ago in toronto i've never because it's i can't do it at a, i can't drop into open mics with this stuff it's dark as shit mm. um and a lot of it is contextually necessary. So like uh, my closer is extremely dark, but if you understand everything that came before it, it makes perfect sense, right? So like, it, it, but I can't just, but the closer itself is three minutes. Well, I can't just drop into a five minute spot and do that. It'll fuck up the show for everyone. Right. And so, and it also won't give me a good read on the material because the audience doesn't need to hear that. So I've been slowly but surely putting it together. But the first time I ever ran it in front of fans, not a big room, just a small room, one where I made sure I could see everyone's face and stuff. Not only did it work, it worked past my expectations because some of the stuff I was the least comfortable with, because I still worry. I'm like, is this going to make sense? Because you can take this out of context. I can only control what I say, not what people hear, right? right. So I can say this, but how will they take it? Because I don't know. Because it's not like I'm sitting in a loft somewhere painting and then I hang it on the wall in a gallery and I'm not there when people look at it. So I don't care what they think i just made the thing i want now i'm making the thing i want but i have to get the feedback right. so i have to be really fucking sure of this stuff and if they're not going to like it i have to really really believe in it i want to do it or be okay with changing it and 99.9 percent .9 of it worked exactly as i wanted but the ones that were the scariest for me were the ones that worked the best mm. because i just let go of the edge of the pool again and like i had this big thing about capitalism and about how you know, capitalism is insidious and what it is and how people don't even know they say they're capitalists, but you're not. Capitalists aren't in this room. Like we are in an abusive relationship with capitalism. That's what it is. And, and so when you start talking about that stuff and the audience, like there's moments where 
I have this joke and I go, capitalism is so insidious. It makes you think things like, I love my uncle, but if he dies, they get to buy a house. And the whole audience goes, because they feel that. They know that feeling. And it's uncomfortable and it's sad. And that's what our system has done to us to make that feeling normal. Right. The fact that we all feel it and all understand it, and it's a horrendous thing to feel, but it's perfectly normal to feel that way. But don't say it. But don't say it. And that's yeah. one of those dark things. And so I say it and everyone is uncomfortable. So it gets exactly the response I want, which is like, oh, dude, well, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> one, of those, one of those moments where it's just like, I call them water gun jokes because it's like you're spraying someone in the face with a water gun. They're like, nah. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah. like those, it's like that. And so that to me is the next step is the rewarding thing of like, but it took me years, like closing in on 10,000 shows to get to the point where I'm capable of doing these things now. Mm. And so that's exciting to me that there's still more to learn. I, I hope I die having never had my best set. That's what I hope. I hope I die always thinking this next hour, you know, <laughs> that's the one that's going to get him. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited. with And social media has allowed me, because I finally started posting clips. I finally started doing this. And it's allowed me to interact with an incredible amount of people. The majority of it is positive, but it also lets you see how deep the programming is yeah. um, sometimes that people, and that's an interesting thing too. People are like, why do you interact in the comments? Well, one, I interact in the comments because positive comments are great. Someone says, that's great. And you go, thanks. But that's kind of where it ends. If you want to pop up in the algorithm, you have to, con the, the algorithm needs to think that it's a controversial thing. So I just reply to the trolls and I troll them back and I mess with them. But sometimes they're real people and you can see like how deep the programming is. And it's, it's unfortunate because they don't realize that like, we may not agree on these individual topics, but the level of anger they have is phenomenal because it is just a comedy. Like I'm saying a thing, but ultimately it's a piece of art. You don't have to look at it. You don't have to view it. You don't have to take part in it. I'm not coming to your house and doing it in front of you. It's there, it's, it's, it's a thing. And it pops up in your algorithm and you can move past it or whatever, but it triggers something. But that also tells me I'm doing the right thing. Because if it makes someone that angry, I'm connecting with them, maybe not in the best way, maybe in a, but I'm connecting with them in that way. I'm saying something significant enough that someone is so angry. I would rather that than someone goes, eh, don't give a shit. Like, like, you know what I mean? I'd rather have someone go, what the fuck? Because it means I'm doing something. I think so that, that's interesting. the anger that burns hottest uh, is fueled by shame. And that's a good observation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I feel like, you know, also in this, on this podcast and, and in my books, one of the things I'm trying to do in the service of relieving unnecessary suffering is, is addressing things that people feel shame around, you know, my mm -hmm. first book's about sexuality. So there's a lot of opportunity for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I, I think that people who are on the border, when they hear that kind of, when they hear me talking shamelessly about sex or shitting or farting or, you know, bodily functions and, you know, mistakes I've made or, you know, fuck ups, I, um, for them, it's like, oh, it, it's relieving. It's like, oh, fuck. All right. Well, if he did that, I guess what I did wasn't that bad. And, but I think yeah. people who are like way over the line and they've sort of, you know, like how a tree grows around a nail and it becomes part of the tree. I feel like personalities that way. And if there's a trauma and a lot of shame and the personality has grown around it and encapsulated it, and it's no longer able to just be pulled out, that's where you get that incandescent anger 
and sense of betrayal and how dare yeah. you speak about this thing that I have spent my whole fucking life trying not to think about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's very, I think that's very accurate. And I think that it, because it's, it's no longer just questioning someone's position on an issue. You're questioning them. Right. So basically the tribalism, it's, inherently built into all of us we're pack animals in a sense so that's basically what it is because people are like i belong to this a lot of people believe the things they believe because they were told this is what we believe and if you have children and if you're raising you can see that you can tell them anything and they'll believe it until they get to the point where they question it and if they never get to the point where they question it so you have a, a lot of things that are happening one and people there's a war on there's a war on intelligence and inquisitiveness and everything that's going on for a long time because the more people ask questions the harder they are to control so there's this idea of like the bullying and stuff if you are smart you know how dare you how dare you ask questions how dare you oh you think you're smarter than me it's like well what who cares you can run faster than i can you're taller than me it doesn't it doesn't matter and, and maybe i'm not maybe i'm just asking questions but the idea that you would be rocking the boat because intelligence is very very dangerous if you're if the masses actually know what's going on it's really hard to keep them down so push the that back right keep them afraid make them afraid of things so you go like okay well they're they're a little bit dumb or i've made them dumb or i've made them think they're dumb because i don't want them to ask questions now i'm going to make them afraid that what they have is going to be taken away whatever that is their sense of self their sense of religion whatever the whatever it is that they connect with that's going to be taken away from them if you don't become violent kick into that kind of aggressiveness so then they make you hate so they go well how can we control you with hate well what we do is when you're hating something you're focused on the thing you're hating. It's tunnel vision. So anyone who disagrees with your way of life, whatever it is, whether you see it with, uh, I get this, I had, a, I posted a bit about guns, which wasn't actually about taking away guns at all. The bit was this. Um, I love these guys who think of guns. Uh, I got a gun to save me and my family from the government. I go, the only way you're going to save you and your family from the government with a gun is if you have enough bullets to kill you and your family. The government with their, you know how you lost the war to government? You have a credit rating and you pay taxes. So the idea is the war that you should be fighting is economic and it's social. You should be pushing against those things. The gun, they let you have it because you'll never use it to fight them because they don't need to fight you that way. They've already got you. So the whole point was not your gun is useless. It was that your gun is is not the right tool for the job. Right. They got so angry, so angry. The level of absolute, I got comment bombed by two A's and a lot of it's bots and everything because they just literally wouldn't understand the joke. And I was like, I just, because I said the, the government with their planes and tanks and Kardashians, which is the joke part, right? <laughs> I go, the only way you're saving you in the government from the government with the gun. So the, basically the point was that was a little joke. But then the actual thing is the government's war is, is far more insidious. It's far more dangerous. And you, and none of us are safe and none of us can get away. And whether you have a gun or not, whether you're a two A guy or not, it does, look, I, I think, sure, have access to guns. I think there should be common sense. But I think, but that's like anything else. Like I, I put in one bit, I go, it, not everyone should have a gun. And people lost their mind. I go, so you think that like convicted murderers and like everyone should, they should have guns. They go, well, of course not. I go, well, that's all I said. But it's because it's so ingrained and mm. it's such a trigger point, pardon the pun. But it's, it's such a thing that attacks their identity. And I think you're 100% right. It's become so ingrained in them that they're, you're not attacking an issue. You're not talking about an issue. You're saying they're no good and their life is wrong. And that's not what it is. And it's not an accident that it's done this way. 
Um, one of my favorite authors is, is Matt Taibbi. I don't know if you know him. Yeah, um, I know him personally. Incredible, incredible. Yeah. One of my favorite. I, I just absorb his books. And I just... Um, I he's just, funny. I get a lot of... Oh, he's Yeah, and, and so smart and so... You know, when people say they're like, they're like, I'm not left or right, I'm center. I mean, I know he leans a bit left, but he definitely does portray both. He does a very good job of being as close to impartial as you can be when faced with this. And I just read or listened to his book, Hate Inc., which is about how the media manipulates this as to fighting each other. And it was so incredibly enlightening. And so, I mean, stuff you know, but then have him put it in such a good way. It was enraging because he was 100% correct. And it shows how this is all, it's all engineered to be this way. It's, it's instincts that we've always had. It's things that have always existed. I'm not saying that tribalism and you know hate and everything haven't existed before. Of course they have. But they have figured out how to manipulate it in such a way. And social media is such a good way of doing it too, that now everyone is backfooted all the time. No one's paying attention to what's going on. Everyone's, you know, I got myself off Facebook. Um, right before the pandemic actually kicked in was because people were like, they were crazy anti or pro Trump. They were crazy anti or, or COVID's not happening or it is happening or didn't, there was no middle line anymore. And these are people I knew. Mm. And I'm like, you are not the same person on Facebook that you are in real life because Facebook allows you to access or say things that you would never. And I had a policy where I just didn't block anybody. And then I got to the point where I'm like, I can't, know this about people that i actually like or know because they're going crazy and yeah. i saw it's psychological warfare man it really is and so that's yeah. uh yeah but but taibi's book is i mean he's so many good ones but that one really connected with me because i'm like oh man it's a fucking he, he compares it to sports like the sport i don't know if you read it but it's so good and he goes yeah because the way sports works is it doesn't matter what even if your team doesn't win, as long as their team loses, it's better. And that's exactly the mentality. And that is that's, that's what we're doing. And that's what so much of media and everything we consume is now. I had I, uh, a friend of mine and I co-created um, an event in Los Angeles called the Motherfucker Awards. It was a, a red carpet, black tie event um, where we... Basically, the idea is we gave we awarded the companies that and, and individuals who had done the most to fuck Mother Earth in, in this year. <laughs> and we had oh, I love that. We had comedians accept the awards on behalf of the company. So some of them would That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So some of them would pretend they worked for the company or they were the CEO yeah, yeah. or whatever. Um, but anyway, we flew Matt Taibbi in as one of the presenters and he was really funny. He, he came out on stage. I, I forget what category it's like, it's like the Oscars, right? You know, so yeah, he was yeah, the yeah, presenter yeah. and he was, he said, you know, I, I, I flew all the way out here from New Jersey or wherever he lives primarily for the opportunity to say the word motherfucker on stage. <laughs> <laughs> This is good. Uh, that's fantastic. We should come to an open mic night because that's, I found that when I moved to England though, is because it's quite part of our lexicon in North America, particularly Canada, the motherfuckers. They, throw it they don't, they say other things. They say cunt all the time in England, but motherfucker, yeah. you don't. Like, it threw them off. They were like, oh, you're harsh, gay, right? Mate? Yeah. They're harsh. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Like, I'm not really, am I that hard? But I was like, they were like, who is this guy? <laughs> Just a psychopunk rock. <laughs> 
And I was like, to me, that's just conversation. Canadians say fuck like it's just a, what does yeah. Bill Burr say? Like, people from the, he's like people from Boston. There was like, yeah, dude, we just say like fuck like it's on the way somewhere. We're like, <laughs> uh, fucking, uh, dude, uh, what the fuck? Like, yeah. like what's that, that fucking you guy? Can, that, that, yeah. You know, but uh, fucking, uh, it's, yeah, it, a it's a space saver. <laughs> And exactly it just gives you processing time just profanity is processing time it's really funny like how different cultures deal with stuff like that i lived in spain for 20 years and the way spanish people swear is hilarious it's so ornate like they'll say they'll say things and also very catholic so they'll oh, say yeah. things like um cago en la leche de la madre que te partió which means I shit in the milk of the mother who gave birth to you. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Like That's really next level, dude. Really, dude? Wow. Like you're, you're shitting in my mother's breast milk? Are you really? Or or what's another one I love is um oh I shit in the salty sea. Cago and a mar salado. Like if you hit your thumb with a hammer, you'd be like, I shit in the salty sea, man. Fuck. see this is this old world culture that we really don't have here in north america that makes it just so fuck fuck. yeah yeah we really got to work on our swearing it's kind (laughs) of it's nowhere near descriptive enough right like yeah i mean come on where's the poetry where's exactly right in that level of intelligence with your profanity so (laughs) i gotta start working that into my act (laughs) yeah definitely i mean i i wanted to do i mean i'm no stand-up comedian but i have a whole set that would only work speaking to Spanish people as a foreigner, right? Because I, I noticed oh. so many ridiculous, funny things about their culture. And I would do it with friends all the time. And they're like, God, I never thought of that. You're right. That's ridiculous. And it's kind of what I think comedy is, is like you said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm seeing the same things other people are seeing. I just have more time to think about it. Mm-hmm. that's one issue time which is a privilege but i think another issue is that you have a you know your your perspective is slightly askew so you see things from an angle that mm-hmm. most people aren't seeing them from and so they recognize what you're talking about but they've never looked at it from that perspective and yeah. so it's the same thing i do with spanish people it's like you know why does your bacon have a hair growing out of it you know, like nobody else has hair growing out of their bacon. And Spanish people are like, really? I thought everybody had hair in their bacon. No, dude, we take the skin off. What's wrong with you? <laughs> anyway. Ah, the hairy bacon. The hairy bacon in the mar, in the, in the salty sea. The water thing, though, that is so, it's, it's true because like so many comedians uh, talk about um, that, you know, oh, I don't. I don't belong here. I don't get this or anything. And I think going back to, so like to me, there's two styles of comedy, internal and external. The The internal comic talks about themselves in relation to the world. And the external comic talks about the world in relation to themselves, right? So uh, the two prime examples would be prior would be an internal comic, mostly about his personal experiences, his life, his history, being a black man in that society. Um, George would be the prime example of an external comic mm. talking about mostly the largest. Now there are crossovers, but both of them are fish out of water. George was just living in a world that didn't make sense to him and he didn't feel like felt like he belonged in whatever it was was he just felt a little out of step with everyone else and I think that's the first the first kind of part of being a comic I think is when you just start to realize I'm not quite 
like everybody else. Like I'm just a little bit, but then that gets into that dangerous part of going you people because it's easy to be mm -hmm. like, I'm not like you, right. but I am. I'm just, I just have a slightly different way of looking at it. And that's an exact, exactly correct about how it is. It's just a, this, this the thing of thing, just this little skewed. Someone said to me once, cause I was talking about quitting uh, a few years ago. I was like, I, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm exhausted. Like, cause it's really hard to break through. There's so much great comedy out there. There's so much comedy in general. And then finding your audience, especially if you're more artisanal, small batch comic, but boutique comic like myself, it's harder to find those, those audiences. I was talking about quitting and my buddy said, he's like, well, you can stop doing standup, but you will never stop being a comic because you will always see things this way. The only difference right. is you won't have anyone to tell. He goes, <laughs> so he, he's, like, yeah. he's like, so you will just be insane. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly right. He goes, that's how you become a drunk, my friend. He goes, because you will go out and you will be at the mall and you will see a thing that drives you insane and you'll have no one to talk to. And he goes, you're too lazy to write books or whatever. So you'll go to the bar and you'll sit there and be like, <laughs> like that's exactly right. right. I think so he's right. Yeah, he's a hundred percent right. Right. One of my that's favorite writers, uh, Milan Kundera, said, "I write books because my kids don't listen to me." <laughs> that's exactly right, though. Right? It's so. Yeah. But it's like it's it's such a privilege. Whatever your expression is, whether it's dance, painting, acting, writing, comedy, whatever it is, it's such a privilege to be good enough at it to find even a small audience for it to know that it's reaching. I mean, it's great to do it regardless, but to know that it connects with even one or two or five or 10 or 50 other people means that you're not alone. Like I see this thing that is ridiculous to me. I am angry about this thing, but I also think it's very funny because even though it's terrible, it's funny. And then I say it to a room full of people. And when people get it, I go, I'm not crazy. Right? Like I'm crazy, but not alone. Like, so right. it's like, it's right. this, it's that acceptance. That's and you're giving them, you're giving them the same experience because they're exactly. in a room full of people who are all laughing and they're all thinking, I'm not crazy. So you're yeah, all exactly. having this healing moment. Yeah. 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 It's a connection thing, man. And it's, and stand up comedy to me is the fastest way to get the drug to the people. I've never found anything quicker. I've never found any, I've done everything pretty much you can in entertainment and I've never found a way to get what I want out to them faster and get the instant response. Live or die, you get it right back. And it's phenomenal. Listen, I've taken up a lot of your time and I've enjoyed every second of it. And um, Me too. This has been great, man. Yeah, I, I I hope a lot of people tell their friends, you know, listen to this and tell their friends and look you up. Where where are your specials viewable? Um, so, uh, so basically, if they go to my social media, um, the lip tree is there with all the stuff. But uh, most of my stuff is on my YouTube channel, um, which is, uh, like I said, if, if you go to This Is Simon King on Instagram or on TikTok in the link tree or thisissimonking.com, you can find it all. One of my specials, my most recent one, which was directed actually by Rory Scovel. I don't know if you know Rory, but he's a fantastic comedian. He's an mm. incredible comic and did such an amazing job with this special and directed it for me. I, I called in a favor and I was so, so he's such a, he's such a master comedian, but really understood what I was doing. I've known him for a long time and he got me and he, it just came out perfect. That's the one with me in the red end. And that's on uh, 800 pound gorilla. Um, Cause they, they're releasing it for us. So that's, that's on their YouTube channel. So, but uh, yeah, this is Simon King.com has all the links or Instagram at this is Simon King. TikTok, this is Simon King, you know, Sweet. all that stuff. So, uh, but I, I hope people enjoy it. And I, and I really, um, yeah, I got to start coming back down to the States again now that things are kind of a little bit more 
more calm. And now I've got an hour because for a while there, I didn't have anything. So I was like, I was like, I could book dates, but what am I going to do? <laughs> Just show up and be like, crowd work. I'm like, no, that's not me. I'm not, yeah. I don't have patience for crowd work anymore. So <laughs> yeah. I did my time doing that stuff. So, well, listen, what you know, you were saying earlier, I hope I die with my best set still ahead of me. And that yeah. reminded me of some, I think the best advice I've ever gotten about writing. And I think this applies to writing comedy as well, which is that you should always aspire to write posthumously. Hmm. I like that. Like, right. Yeah. Write as if you're dead. Right. Yeah. Like, cause you yeah. will be soon enough, yeah. you know? And it's not, not, not tethered by the mortal bullshit or by the ramifications of it. Or just the, just think that, yeah, because ultimately, I mean, people ask me sometimes why I talk about death in my act quite a bit. And I go, because that's the one thing I guarantee we all share. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say to the ground.